0: That the entire Old Testament is about the promise of salvation through the Son of David, Jesus Christ, who will defeat the grave death by his faith as a man and his faithfulness as your God in order to create faith in him, that is trusting him in you. That's what the whole book's about. This was established very clearly in chapter 1 up to verse 18. And then from verse 18 to 3, verse 19 and 20, we're in this extended section of which last week's chapter 2 was just the middle. And the point of this extended section is that sin, missing the mark, godlessness, unrighteousness, evil it doesn't matter what word you use although today paul is going to use the word sin in romans for the first time to describe this missing the mark sin sin is not merely something that man does that's wrong sin is that all of man has gone wrong and this problem is so extreme So complete. Not a little bit of dirt on the skin, but a corruption of the entire person, not just individually you, but us, Adam, the Adamic race. It is so complete that no rules for living, no ideas about what should be, no efforts on our part can undo this. Rather, they tend to make it worse. So even the good law of God, the Ten Commandments, the most pristine description of what a good, righteous life looks like, even the good law of God can really only achieve showing us our sinful condition when we put our hearts and minds into it. Now, for the Lutherans out there in the internet world that might think, I'm saying that means the law only accuses. I'm not saying that. The law does always accuse, but it does not only accuse, it also curbs and it guides. These are the so-called three uses of the law that all belong to the Holy Spirit, and we can talk about that some other time. But the point that Paul is driving at here is the culmination, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, that's where I want us to start. So if you have your Bible and are in Romans 3, find verse 19 and 20. If you want to use one of those pew Bibles, this will be on page 941, unless you happen to have a large prince, and then again, you're you're on your own there. So we're going to start at chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, because this is what the entire section has been driving towards. This is the point he wants to make, and it's right before the big shift, the big turn. The climax of the story gets you to the place where the hero has no hope and everything's going wrong, and then he wins. That's what every story is about. Every good story has a climax, and that's how it works. So also this right now. He has been leading us to the climax, and chapter 3, verse 21, which we'll look at in a moment, is what happens as we win, as we overcome, as, in fact, Jesus is risen. He is risen. Hallelujah. But let's work our way to this climax and let Paul really bring us there. So chapter three, verses 19 and 20 say this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, there's a lot in there. I'm not going to pull all of it out, but I want to get the key points. What's the reason that God has given a revealed law? It's so that every mouth may be stopped. It's so that when we come before him, we finally shut up. We stop trying to say that we have a reason, that we have an excuse, that we can do it. If only we had more time, somebody else got in the way. All of that is just shut up. The law has been given to say to you that you are not enough. All of us are going to be held accountable to God for every thought, every word, every deed. And that means if that's how we have to be judged, we are all going to burn in eternal fire. This is actually good news, by the way, not the burning and eternal fire just by itself. But the good news, again, is that God knows this and we don't. And so he's telling us this so that we'll shut up and hear what else he has to say. Rather than spend our whole lives trying to convince him that we're okay, he wants us to be quiet and know he's God. We're not okay. He's going to do something about it. But if we're yammering on all the time about how we ought to be this and that, and we can only try some more, we can't hear. So he gives us the law to make us quiet. Knowing that, again, verse 20, no human being, the Greeks man, man means human being. They're not really different words. No man will be justified in his sight through works of the law, right? Now, this is important since in chapter 2 he has talked about how those who do good will be justified by the law. So, so which one is it? Is it that the law will justify you or is it no one will be justified by the law? I think it's pretty clear since he's working from the front to the end. The end says, look. It was a hope, a blind and fleeting dream that man could find goodness on his own. But what that has shown us is that we can't. That is with one exception, and we talked about this last week. Jesus Christ has been justified by his works. The perfect man was vindicated by what he did. He did not deserve to die, nor should he ever have died. He gave up his life at the hands of sinners, and he was restored to his life. He is risen. Not only because he was God, but also because as the perfect man, he earned it. And now he has turned around to give what he has earned to you. Again, I get ahead of myself with the gospel there. So again... Through the law, end of verse 20, comes knowledge of sin. That's been the driving point through chapter 1, 2, and 3. Now, let's go back and look at a little bit of this description of sin that he puts in. We're going to start at chapter 3, verse 10. The opening section, which I'll talk you in chapter 3, I'll talk about that in the late service. If you want to listen to that sermon, sp815.org or on YouTube, we'll get into this discussion about, uh, are the Jews better off? It's it's a little bit of a, a tangent. But uh, so we're going to skip that for this morning here, and just go straight into his pointing out that what the Jews have in the Old Testament is a description of their sin. That means that they're not better off than anyone else. We're all sinners, like he just said. And chapter ten, you can probably see in your pew Bible, probably in your other Bibles, chapter ten, chapter three, verse ten. And following, it's set apart like a poem. Can you see that there? How it's sort of like there's a bunch of space breaks and it's a little bit more set like like poetry. The reason for that is not only that it is, it's very poetic, it is a poem, but it's an amalgamation, a combination of Old Testament quotes about the problem of mankind. Uh, A moment ago, before we started the sermon, I mentioned Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God also Psalm 53, by the way, they're identical. Uh, some of this is from that. It's a direct quote of Psalm 14. Some of it is from Isaiah. Some of it is from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's really quite a thing. I'm not going to try to go into all those details. What I want to show you is the meaning of this poem, as well as one kind of bird's eye view part of the poetry. So I, I think that's where <clears throat> where we want to start. Um If you look at verses 11 and 12, 10, 11, and 12, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That doesn't quite look the way in English that it does in the Greek, where it kind of depends on how you break it up. There's either either six Or there are five lines, and you can debate which one it is. But of them, four lines all start identically. There is not. There is not. There is not. There is not. It's very clear. It's two words, two in the Greek. So you have a total of six, that is, four there is not, surrounding either one or two other statements. That one or two is, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. So you have the all... There is not, there is not, there is not, there is not. Now, what I like about this generally is it plays with, I think, Old Testament numerology. This is one of my kind of hobbies. What do the numbers mean? Now, they always are actually what they are, but they also tend to take on deeper significance. So the number seven is the number of holiness throughout the Old Testament because on the seventh day, God rested and called it holy. So seven becomes a, a meaning of holiness. The number six is the number of man, because man was created on the sixth day. The number five is the number of chaos and disorder. And that one's a little harder to explain, because God didn't really create that. That's the devil's work. The number four is the number of the earth, like the four corners of the earth, or the four winds of heaven. So here we have either the number six or five, and it doesn't matter, six or five, there we go. Um, It doesn't matter which one in a sense, because they're both the problem of sin, man or the devil. We're dealing with the problem of sin. And then you have surrounding one of those things, the problem of sin, you have the number four. There is not, there is not, there is not, there is not. That's the earth. So you have a poetic discussion about the entire earth having a single problem that is man and the devil, just in the numbers. Okay, now he's going to jump from there uh, into another four. That begins at verse 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This again, the number four, the entire earth. But now every single line instead of there is not, it's something to do with your mouth. You got a throat, you got a tongue, you got lips, you got a mouth. Yeah? So you have this problem of sin and it's a problem of the mouth. Sounds like James. They're not so far off, Paul and James. So there's your, your, your four, from six to four. And now we have a series of three. This is generally the number of the Trinity, the number of God. And we're moving six, four, three to one in the way the poetry is laid out. But now we move from the mouth to the feet. All right, so verses 15 through 17, their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths, right? That's what your feet walk on are ruin and misery, and the way of peace. Again, think of a road. Think of like a a philosophical way. Think of a road. The way of peace they have not known. So now from the mouth to what the feet do, and at the heart of what the feet do is the shedding of blood. So from lies to murder. In our hearts, that's the problem. And then verse 18, the single shot that sums the whole thing up, it's a heart problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The tie of eyes and heart thing. there. We cannot see truth. All right, so that's the poetry I wanted to share with you. If that was boring, I'm sorry. I think it's really neat when it does that kind of thing. But let's, let's look at now the meaning of it all, right? None is righteous. No, not one. And that's it, all of sin. Sin is complete. There's not a good human out there. If we all go to judgment day just like this, we all burn, that's it. He's gonna just emphasize this over and over. But what does that mean? It means no one understands. Without Jesus revealing to you the truth about who he is, you cannot know who God is. Someone who says, I love God, but I don't think Jesus is God, they don't love God. In fact, it even says that no one seeks for God. What they say, I love God, they mean some other thing. I don't mean the actual creator. Jesus accused the Pharisees, you know, you say of him, he is your God. Uh, but, But if you loved him, you would know me, right? And so this is the idea that we as Christians really want to embrace, not only that this is our nature, We all want to repent of this, but now that we are Christians, please understand that the wicked of the world, they don't understand this. They think they're seeking good. They think they're looking after uh, what is understandable and pursuing a righteousness, and they're not. They're not. Wicked men think they're doing good things when they're doing wicked things, and that's some of the wisdom you don't want to miss in this. That all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No nation stands forever for very good reason. No one does good, not even one. Now, someone who wants to be a fool can say, well, then not even one, then not even Jesus. Yeah, that's not what he means. He means without Jesus, not a single one of us has actually been good. Now, how do we know this? What about our mouths? I mean, think about these words. Their throat is an open grave. Maybe you don't like to think of yourself that way. But the fact that you do use your tongue to deceive, you know you have. You know you're always more willing to put a good good construction on yourself than you are to put a good construction on your neighbor. And you're always more willing to say about your neighbor, well, they did this and they did that. And then when they say that about you, they say, why are you being so mean to me? So our tongues are just ever yapping in favor of ourselves and in denigration of others. And that's the deception. So that the venom of asps is under our lips. We are far more quick to curse than to praise. Something goes wrong, you say, oh, phooey, that's a curse. Something goes right, do you say, hallelujah? Probably not. Huh? The venom of asps is under our lips. Our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. That, that's a revelation of the heart of the problem. And so from our tongues that speak the evil, come our feet that do the evil, feet being swift to shed blood. Every time I've read that this morning, I cannot stop thinking about uh, a video I saw yesterday of a protest of the Roe versus Wade leak. It's an illegal leak. Let's just leave that where it is. But it hasn't even happened yet. And there's protests going on. And this woman who is a African-American woman, apparently she is a professor somewhere. She's dressed in very little clothing. She's hanging a baby by something, like, not a baby, but like a doll that's a baby by some sort of rope and yanking it around and shouting about wanting to kill the children and actually saying, God killed his son. Why can't I kill mine? Feet are swift to shed blood. I mean, it, it just doesn't get any clearer than that. Now, what we want to do though is realize that we're part of her. Before we're part of God. She's our sister. And we're just as evil. Except for Jesus Christ. Now because we're Christians. We have Jesus Christ. And so we can know we're not really part of her anymore. We've been set apart. Yes. But not of our own nature. And that's Paul's point. We don't get to look down our nose and say. Well I'd never be like her. We get to instead say. Jesus have mercy on all of us. Please. And absolutely stop her. Jesus stop her, but if you can stop her by bringing her to repentance, we prefer this. Yeah. Feet swift to shed blood and our paths are ruin and misery. We don't know what peace is. All because verse 18, there's no fear of God. That is faith. Fear of God is the Old Testament way of talking about trusting who God really is. To fear Yahweh is to trust in Jesus. They're the exactly the same thing. And yes, this does have to do with a certain level of fear. Think of the story of Joseph wherein he is in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife comes and says, lie with me. And he says, how could I do this thing and sin against God? He's afraid of the evil because it's evil. And he knows that to be evil is to be held accountable to God. That is faith. It doesn't mean that we don't believe our God's the God of grace. It doesn't mean that we don't believe that Jesus loves you. Yes, he does. The Bible tells you so. It means that once you realize Jesus loves you, therefore, you can actually learn to fear him. You fear him not as one who has to run away from him, but as one who would run to him because he's worthy to be feared, giving him the power, therefore, to protect you. If, If you don't let me say it this way. You cannot be protected by someone that you're not afraid of. You have to protect them. Yeah? If you're not afraid of them, you're going to be the one that protects them. So if, if you want Jesus to protect you, then you have to acknowledge he is worthy to be feared. Okay. Why am I harping on this? Because there's a lot of Christians out there, Lutherans included, that want to say, well, it doesn't really mean fear. It just means kind of awe, as if awe is kind of a happy feeling. If you've ever really been in awe, it's 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 fear. <laughs> it's a type of fear. I, I, let me let me explain the difference between kind of like the happy awe and and, and fear awe. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody? A couple of you. I, I haven't, but I, I've seen pictures, which doesn't inspire. Well, it kind of inspires awe. Uh, but like, okay, so you're at the Grand Canyon, you're looking at it. Wow, that's beautiful. Okay, so I mean, that's maybe awe, right? And then someone who's your brother comes up behind you and shakes you right at the edge of it. That's fear, right? And that's what we need to have of Jesus, actually. Oh, no, no, he's, it's really that big. It's really that dangerous. And he's on our side, which is why it's so good. Fear of God is not before our eyes natively, but faith in Christ is the fear of God. And so again, where are we moving in this? We're moving to where our mouths are stopped before God in terms of making excuses and claiming we are good enough so that we can hear that he knows that already and he has another plan. So that's why we're going to jump to chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, where there's this but now at the start. That's there in the Greek as well. But now. It is so clear a change. Everything that came before is one point. And now I'm going to make another point. The one point is that the righteousness of man is insufficient. This other point is there's another righteousness that has now come. Two kinds of righteousness. Yes? But now the righteousness, not of man, but of God, has been manifested. That just means revealed. It's come to pass apart from the law. That's outside of us. Outside of what we do, outside of our efforts, our thoughts, our dreams, all of it. It's outside of us. Although the law, here he means the Old Testament, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, again, how did I start this morning? Um, The book of Romans is an explanation that the Old Testament is about the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ by his faith for your faith, okay? So the Old Testament law testifies to Jesus. He fulfills that law, but what he then has as a result of this, or even before this, is a different kind of righteousness than man-made righteousness. That is, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Now, there in verse 22, faith in Jesus, we can get in a debate if we want. And I'm going to assert that I think uh, the text in English is wrong here. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. That's true. Paul's going to say that two other times in this text. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think he's actually talking about the faith of Jesus. <clears throat> so you, if you just kind of read it again, you can read it as, and both are grammatically appropriate. Through faith in Jesus, through the faith of Jesus. Now, why do I think he's saying that? Well, because he's going to talk about our faith in Jesus later. Right now, he's talking about the righteousness of God, which is, again, seen in Jesus' faithfulness. Now, maybe maybe this is a struggle for you to be like, What well, Jesus had faith? Yes. He was a man. He trusted God. Thy will be done, he said. That's faith. And it's that faith that is restored to mankind in him. That's what we didn't have. And then he has it for us on our behalf. So the faithfulness and the faith of Jesus are things, right? So again, both sides, faith in Jesus, faith of Jesus, they're both true teachings. I think here again, The righteousness of God is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is for those of you who believe in him. He's going to explain what that means in the next sentence. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's chapter 1 through 3 that we've just gone over at length. And all, doesn't say all, but he's talking about all. All are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right, so, so we don't get rid of faith in Jesus if that one line is the faith of Jesus. They're, they're both here. And what is that faith that we have now in? Let's kind of work it backwards. To be received by faith, what? the propitiation by his blood, propitiation. I I know I've done this before, so bear with me, those of you who remember this, but if you don't remember, this will help you always remember propitiation. What does it mean? The Rolling Stones wrote a song about propitiation. It goes like this. I can't get no propitiation, all right? So if you know the song, I can't get no satisfaction, you can always remember what the word propitiation means. It means satisfaction. Okay, there is a satisfaction by the blood of Jesus. What's been satisfied? Remember back Romans 1, verse 18 the wrath of God. The wrath of God. God designed to crush his son in order to end his wrath in his son. By the way, the answer to that woman who said, if God can kill his son, why, why can't I kill mine? I mean, it's a really easy answer. His son could rise from the dead. That's why dummy. It makes me so angry. Sorry. I said, it really makes me angry. Um, propitiation by his blood. That's what the faith is in, that God has satisfied his wrath against you in the blood of Jesus. God's the one who put this forward, early part of verse 25. And this then, verse 24, calls a redemption. Redemption means to buy. I still remember stealing, uh, stealing uh, from my parents' uh, kind of recycling bin in Oregon as a young child, I'd, I'd go and I'd take the, the, the pop leader bottles and I'd go up to the, the local uh, quickie mart or whatever and turn them in and I'd get my nickel for it. And it was stealing because my dad wanted his nickels back, right? And I was like, well, I'll take like five nickels here. And I'd go and I'd buy some Laffy Taffy, right? Um, I was They told me then, are you going to redeem these bottles? Is it a redemption. You're, you're buying back the nickel that they had to take from you when you bought your soda pop. I don't even know if they still do that places. Probably not. But In any case, for me, that always helps me remember redemption. Redemption, you're getting back what was yours. So God is buying back what was his, and that's you. He bought back you by the satisfaction of his own wrath in the blood of Jesus. This is what it means to be justified by grace as a gift. Yes? And grace and gift, they kind of mean the same thing. You can also think of grace as an attitude, It is a positive disposition. It is God's decision to be for you and not against you. He has done this as a gift. And as a result, he has left you justified. That also means righteous, right? Righteousified, made good, made upright. Everything that Paul said you are not, there is no one righteous. No one sees God. No one understands. Now in Jesus, you are. And this doesn't even have to be something that you feel or experience for it to be true. It merely is a promise that it is true. And that promise that it is true includes the promise that through your believing it and that alone, it will begin to transform your life and world. You will see differently than those who walk on the path of evil. Your tongue will learn to be closed rather than to spit out the venom all of the time. You will have a fear of God before your eyes. Because when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you see what he did for you, you know who he is, your righteous king. Again, you are made new, a new creation through that trust that is created in you by his righteousness. Now, in his righteousness, out of his faith, for your faith. All right, from here. Looking at our time, we're almost out. I'm going to read 23 to 26 here. For uh We did that already. No, it didn't. Here we go. We read up to the middle of 25. We're going to pick up in the middle of 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine for parents, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And let's look at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The Lutheran Reformation is about that line, right? Right? Christianity, and theory, is about that line. We hold that one is justified by faith in Jesus apart from everything you do. That, that should be Christianity. But the Lutheran Reformation occurred because there was this massive king in charge of Christianity selling forgiveness who said, you have to buy it from me or else you're not really saved. And we're like, wait a minute here. That sounds like the devil's teaching. He's like, well, then I'll kill you. And then there was a war and a bunch of other stuff. That's why we're not Roman Catholics. I mean, really, that that is why we're not Roman Catholics. There are Roman Catholics who are Christians. They believe that he is risen. They believe that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. They maybe even believe in grace, but they technically can't believe this line because this line has been excommunicated in the the, uh, Council of Trent. And Anyone who would hold that one is justified by faith alone They are anathema. So that is why it still matters that Lutherans exist, especially since many other Christians, while they say they believe this because they've rejected the Lord's Supper, they have no place to put this faith. And they end up saying to you that, yes, indeed, Jesus died for you by grace through faith. So now the way you know that is you see your good works and you know you really love him. By the time that works its way out, they're in as much doubt as the Roman Catholic is. So for us here now, again, St. Paul, as we walk through the book of Romans, I want us to grab onto this. Hold it tight. Your God has justified you. He's made you all good. Does that mean your sin's gone? Yes, in his sight it does. Does that mean you go do whatever you want? You'll be fine? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We'll get into that in future texts. The law is still the law. Good is still good. Evil is still evil. But another kind of salvation has come about not the kind you grab not the kind you climb not the kind you think not the kind you earn but the kind that god does to you like someone drowning in the sea nothing left giving up sinking down water going in the lungs jesus dives in grabs pulls you out all on his own That is what it means to be justified by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Amen.